Have you ever been awestruck? Have you ever looked at something and just been overwhelmed by the beauty and the power of what you saw? I've had quite a few moments like that, and in my life, a lot of those awestruck moments come from nature. I'll give you a few examples. Last summer, our family went down to Red River Gorge, and we hiked up to a place called Whittleton Arch. And when we got up to the arch itself, we were surrounded by these massive rock formations. And we stood under a waterfall, and we looked up, and there were these clouds of mist floating through the trees. I mean, it really looked like something out of a fairy tale. We just stood there with our mouths open. And then there was the time when we went down to the Georgia Aquarium, and we got to stand right up next to a whale shark, which is the largest species of fish in the world. Seeing that shark up close was a phenomenal experience. But then other experiences were much closer to home. In fact, one of them was literally in our backyard. A few years ago, a storm came through, and we walked onto the deck, and we saw this double rainbow. And, I mean, I looked at the sky, and I thought, God, are you kidding me? The world you made is so amazing. I was awestruck. And the truth is, that's what creation is supposed to do. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes that creation points us to the Creator. God's fingerprints are all over nature, from the Grand Canyon to an intricate little snowflake, or, or from, a, from a sky full of stars to a newborn baby. All we can do is just look at these things in complete awe. But no matter what you and I have seen, nothing could compare to what this world witnessed almost 2,000 years ago. For a brief period of time, God himself came near in the form of Jesus. And for the three years of his ministry, Jesus said things and did things that left people awestruck. There was never anyone else like Jesus, before or since. Last September, we started a journey through the life and the ministry of Jesus, and today we continue that journey. And for the next few weeks, we're going to focus on several events where Jesus demonstrates his awesome power and authority and love. This morning, we'll start with a short story from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and I want to jump right in and read this together. You can follow along with me in your Bible or up on the screen. So Mark 4, starting with verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So you see what I mean? Those disciples were awestruck because Jesus told the weather what to do and the weather obeyed. It's an amazing story. 
Now, we're going to dig deeper and look at the meaning of this story, but before we do that, I want us to notice something. In a lot of great stories, whether it's a movie or a book or whatever, you'll find a pattern. And some people call this pattern the three-act structure. And if you start looking for this, you'll see the three-act structure all over the place. It's in a lot of my favorite movies like the original Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark or The Lord of the Rings. And here's how it works. Act one is called the setup. In the setup, you meet at least one main character and you get to know them. And the hope is the audience will start to like the main character and get invested. So this would be Luke Skywalker, Indiana Jones, or Frodo Baggins. Now, in the early part of Act 1, things are pretty good for the main character, maybe even boring, but that's not going to last, right? Act 2 is called the confrontation. Our character encounters some major problem or quest or challenge. There's an enemy to defeat or an obstacle to overcome. And unfortunately, the situation usually gets a lot worse before it gets better. But finally, we get to Act 3, which is called the resolution. In Act 3, we reach some kind of climax. The problem is overcome or the enemy is defeated. The main character has been changed forever. And in most cases, The world is now a better place. So keep that pattern in your minds. Act one, the setup. Act two, the confrontation. And act three, the resolution. If you ever write a movie script, you you might want to follow this pattern. It's made some people very, very rich. But that's not why I share this with you. I I want us to know about the three-act structure because it often shows up in real life. For example, think about the story we just read. In Act 1, the disciples are on a boat with Jesus taking a leisurely ride across the lake. In Act 2, a storm blows in and it threatens the lives of our main characters. But in Act 3, we get to the resolution. In this great climax, Jesus calms the wind and the waves and he brings everything back to a place of peace and safety. It's a perfect example of the pattern, isn't it? But why do you think this particular story follows this particular pattern? Is it just that Mark knows how to write a good story? I don't think that's it. I do believe this is a historical event. And God wanted this to be in the Bible because sooner or later, that three-act structure plays out in each one of our lives. In fact, some of you have already lived through all three acts. Act one, things were good. Act two, things got really bad. And then act three, you got through it somehow. You made it to the other side. Now, some of you would say, actually, that's not my story. I've I've never run into some huge obstacle or challenge. And if that's you, hang on, because you're in act one right now. I can't tell you when, but act two is coming. And the truth is, it doesn't matter which act you're living through now. God wants to speak to all of us through this story. He wants to equip us so that we're prepared for every obstacle and every challenge and every storm we will ever face. We just need to listen to him. So let's go back and look at this passage more closely. Act one, what's the setup? Where did these characters come from? Where are they going? Well, let's go back to the first verse we read earlier, Mark 4.35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, 
let us go over to the other side. All right, we need some context here. First, Mark says that day. Uh, What day are we talking about? Well, if you skip up and read from the beginning of chapter 4, you see that Jesus spent that day telling a bunch of parables. And does that sound familiar to anyone? If you were here last week, it should, because that's exactly what we talked about, right? This is the day when Jesus preached a sermon that was a whole series of parables, like the one about the sower and the seed and the four soils. So that's good to know. Today's story takes place right after that sermon. Jesus had been preaching and teaching all day, and he's worn out. He needs to get away for a little bit. So he says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. So the other side of what? Well, back in verse 1, Mark says that Jesus was teaching beside a lake. And in some places, the Bible calls this Lake Gennesaret. But the more common name is the Sea of Galilee. Now, in the land of Israel, there are two major bodies of water. Down south, you have the Dead Sea, and up north, you have the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of a stretch to call this one a sea. It really is a big lake. It's about 13 miles long from north to south and about eight miles wide from east to west. So if you are in the middle of this lake on a clear day, you can see the shore in every direction. And that brings back memories for me because almost 25 years ago, I got to visit Israel with a college group, and we actually rode in a boat across the Sea of Galilee. It was really nice. The sun was shining, there was a slight breeze blowing, and the water was as calm as it could be. However, the conditions aren't always like that, and here's why. The Sea of Galilee is about 700 feet below sea level. It's the lowest freshwater lake on the planet. And it's kind of like a bowl because the sea is surrounded by these mountains and hills. Some of them rise up 2,000 feet. Those hills have ravines that act like a funnel. And when the cold winds blow down to meet the warm winds over the sea, watch out, because those storms can be brutal. I read one commentary that said centuries later, fishermen gave a name to the wind that blows down from the hills across the Sea of Galilee. The name is Sharkia, which in Arabic means shark. You get the symbolism, don't you? The wind sweeps in and attacks like a shark. Of course, that's exactly what happens to Jesus and the disciples. They're in the middle of this huge storm, and they're riding in this small fishing boat. And we actually have a good idea of what their boat looked like because of a big discovery at the Sea of Galilee back in 1986. There was a drought that year, and the water level dropped drastically. And two guys on a beach found this boat that dates back to the first century A.D., And this is a picture of that boat where it now sits in a museum. And nobody is saying this is the actual boat that carried Jesus and the disciples, but theirs was probably very similar. This one is about 27 feet long. It's seven and a half feet wide. The total capacity would have been 12 to 15 people. So if you think of Jesus plus 12 disciples, that's a pretty full load. Okay, so we know about the sea and we know about the boat. We're ready to get back to the story. Verse 36, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. 
a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So here we go. We've made the transition from Act 1 into Act 2. We have our confrontation. It's a furious squall. And I found this interesting. In Matthew's version of this story, he describes the storm using the Greek word seismos. So does that sound familiar? It's where we get our word seismic or seismograph. So in other words, this storm had the strength of an earthquake. We're talking about a cataclysmic force of nature here. Now for just a moment, imagine that you are one of the disciples in that little fishing boat. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Well, you're thinking, this is it. We're going to die. You are terrified, but you're not going down without a fight. Your adrenaline starts pumping, and you and your friends are doing everything possible to stay afloat. But then picture this. All of a sudden, you glance over at the back of the boat, and what do you see? Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. i got to say, this is one of my favorite details of any story in the whole Bible. Uh, For one thing, this is the only specific record we have of Jesus sleeping And that's kind of ironic. The only time we see Jesus asleep is in the middle of this crazy storm. But I also love the detail of the cushion. I can just see Jesus with his head on a little pillow, dreaming happy dreams (laughs) while everybody else is going nuts. Kind of reminds me of a few years ago when my wife and I woke up in the middle of the night because literally all of our smoke alarms went off. And to this day, we don't know why that happened. There was no smoke and no fire. But all these alarms are connected, so they worked in unison to create this ear-splitting noise all over the house. Now, my son and my wife and I woke up like normal human beings, but our girls slept through the whole thing. And in the morning, we were like, how did they do that? I don't know. And in a similar way, the disciples must have been dumbfounded as they saw Jesus taking a nap. But they also would have been pretty annoyed, right? Because if Jesus is sleeping, that means he's not helping. And it really looked like he was leaving them to fend for themselves. That's how it seemed. So what do the disciples do next? They go to Jesus and they ask a very pointed question. In fact, we're going to tell the rest of this story by focusing on three important questions. In the first of those questions, the disciples ask, Don't you care? Here's what the verse says. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And let's notice here, the disciples do not ask Jesus to calm the storm. That's not where their heads are at. Their thinking is on a very primitive level. We're about to die, and Jesus, you're doing absolutely nothing. Uh, You know, you could pick up an oar. You could help us bail out the boat. At the very least, you could try to stay awake. And you know, for any of us who have felt the fear of living through Act 2, we can relate to those feelings, can't we? When you're in the storm and you feel yourself going down, you're thinking, God, where are you? Can't you see me here? Aren't you going to help? Don't you care? (laughs) And then, how does God answer those questions? Does he speak from the sky? Does he send an angel? In most cases, that's not how he operates. But in this story, 
We get a glimpse of what is happening behind the scenes when we go through a storm. Yes, Jesus was asleep, but that doesn't mean he didn't care. And yes, Jesus was not running around all panicked trying to save the boat, but that doesn't mean he wasn't willing to help. The reality is Jesus was willing and able to help. So there's a lesson here that applies to us today. The silence of God does not equal a lack of concern. The fact is, Jesus is about to prove that he has the power to deal with any storm we could ever face, and he does care. Let's pick up the story again in verse 39. After the disciples went to Jesus and they said, don't you care about us at all? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. So there's the turning point. The confrontation reaches a climax. Jesus steps up, and did you see this? He rebukes the storm. He speaks to the wind and the waves in the same way that a parent gives orders to a child. I said, sit down and be quiet. As a father, this is very impressive to me because Jesus didn't have to say it twice. At our house, it usually takes more than that. But when Jesus gives the order, the storm is like, your wish is my command. And now we move from Act 2 into Act 3. We're at the resolution. The storm has been stilled. The obstacle is overcome. But you know, in Act 3, you still have to wrap things up. The characters have to look around and figure out what they've learned. And Jesus is happy to guide them along that path of discovery. So he looks at the disciples and he has a couple questions for them. He says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And right here, a lot of us might sympathize with the disciples. We might say, come on, Jesus, can't you give these guys a break? They genuinely thought they were going to die. How can you expect them not to be afraid? Well, this is one more occasion where Jesus surprises us. He does not fit our preconceived notions. Now, if Jesus did match that one-dimensional, nicey-nice image that we sometimes have in our minds, he might have walked up to the disciples and said, it's okay, it's, it's okay, guys, I know that was scary, but everything's fine now. That's not what he says, though. And what he actually said, it seems kind of abrupt, doesn't it? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? So let's think about this. Why does Jesus not show a little more compassion here? Well, for one thing, the disciples just woke him up from a nap. I don't deal with that too well myself. But I don't think that's it. I think Jesus is impatient because the disciples have been very slow to understand who he is and what he's about. You know, uh, in this series called The Gospel, we're, we're following the life of Jesus in chronological order. So let's rewind for a second and think about what the disciples have already seen. They already saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw him heal the sick and cast out demons. And then there was the day when they saw Jesus bring a dead man back to life. So put all those things together. The disciples already have plenty of evidence that Jesus has power over nature, power over spiritual forces, and power over death itself. So I don't blame Jesus for thinking, what's it going to take for them to get it? 
You see, he just wants them to understand that as long as they, uh, as they are with him, it doesn't matter what's going on, they can relax. So here's the lesson that I see here. Yes, the disciples' fear was very natural, but in reality, they had no reason to fear. They had no reason to fear because they were with Jesus. And now, this is an important question. Did the presence of Jesus guarantee that they would survive that night? Actually, no. God doesn't promise to clear away every storm. And the hard truth is some storms may lead to our death. But that's the amazing thing. The presence of Jesus means there is no need for us to fear even death. That's powerful, isn't it? If you have found a life-changing relationship with Jesus and you have forgiveness and salvation through him, you can literally laugh in the face of any storm, including death. But that's not where the disciples were yet. They haven't reached that point. They're still growing in their faith. So we come to the end of Act 3 with one final question. Verse 41, they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So question number three, who is this? It's kind of funny, isn't it? While that storm was raging, the disciples were terrified. And then Jesus calms the storm, the disciples are still terrified. Where's that fear coming from? Well, it actually makes sense when you think about it. Yes, the disciples had already seen Jesus do some amazing things. But this was something new. Jesus demonstrated that he could control the forces of nature on a very grand scale. And the disciples knew that only one being has power like that. The universe obeys the command of its master. It's becoming clear that Jesus is not just a a great teacher or a great miracle worker. He's not just someone who can call down the power of God. He truly is God in human form. You know, back in the Old Testament, when the prophets performed a miracle, they would first cry out to God and ask Him to show up. They were totally dependent on His power. But did you notice? Jesus does not call on a higher power. So that's one piece of the puzzle, and here's another one. The disciples knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And the Old Testament repeatedly states that only God has power over the seas. Listen to this example from Psalm 89. It says, Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. So who is it that rules over the sea? Only God can do that. So it's a pretty clear connection, isn't it? But it gets even better. Psalm 107 is almost a perfect parallel to our story in Mark chapter 4. Check this out. Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the the works of the Lord, His wonderful deeds in the deep. For He spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and they went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. 
The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. It's pretty crazy, isn't it? So this is not ambiguous at all. Anyone who knew the Psalms would have understood this. It was no random thing for Jesus to calm the storm. This miracle was designed to answer the question of his identity. And all of these implications are beginning to dawn on the disciples. And eventually they'll get to that point where they know Jesus is more than just our rabbi. He is God. And you know, if that's who's sitting across from you in the boat, yes, you're going to be awestruck. So this is Act 3. And it's an interesting resolution, isn't it? It's another lesson that we learn from Jesus and the disciples. The more we understand who Jesus really is, the more awestruck we will be. So we've made it through the story, Acts 1, 2, and 3. And we picked up a few lessons along the way. But I want to go back to something I said earlier. I believe that God wanted this story to appear in the Bible because sooner or later, this three-act structure plays out in each of our lives. So let me ask you, where is your story right now? Are you still in Act 1? Are you in that time of setup where life hasn't knocked you down yet? If so, get ready. Storm's coming. Or would you say that you're in Act 3? Maybe you've been through a, a, a very tough season, but you got through it. If that's you, I'm really glad to hear that. But you also need to get ready. Because until we leave this world... There's always another storm on the way. But then, I know some of you would say, you're in the middle of Act 2 right now. And you feel just like those disciples did in that boat, in the middle of the storm. If that's you, I'm sorry. You're the only one who knows what it's like to go through what you're going through. But I really wish you didn't have to go through it. At the end of the day, though, Nobody gets to skip Act 2. You're either in the storm right now, or it's somewhere on the horizon. So, how can we be ready? How do we survive this storm when we're in the middle of it? Does it really help to read this story in, Mac, in Mark chapter 4? Well, I don't think the story itself will help. I believe help comes from the God who is behind the story. And that may seem like a, a subtle difference, but let me explain what I mean. When you read the Bible and you come across a story like this, it's easy to draw a conclusion that's not completely accurate. For example, some people might look at this miracle and say, well, all you need to do is call on the name of Jesus and he will show up and all your problems will go away. That's just not what Scripture teaches now, it is true that for all of us who belong to Jesus, we look forward to a day when every storm will be calmed. But as long as we're in this world, as I said, we're still waiting for that day. So then if that's not the point of this story, what is the point? Well, you may have your own opinion, but here's what I believe. Through this story, we learn who Jesus is. We learn that Jesus is God. And we learn that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're facing, what we really need 
is God himself. We need the presence of Jesus. So that's the critical question. When I find myself in the middle of a storm, what's going to help me rest in the presence of Jesus? Well, again, your answer may be different, but for myself, I want to remember three truths that I see in this story. And for me, these truths are very helpful, so I hope they're helpful to you too. Here's number one. Jesus is not intimidated by any storm that you face. You know, before that boat left the shore, I believe Jesus knew good and well the storm was coming. I mean, if he can control the weather, I'm pretty sure he can predict the weather too. But even though he knew that storm was coming, what did Jesus do? He went to the back of the boat, he found a little cushion, he laid down his head, and he fell asleep. He wasn't intimidated at all. The same thing is true for you, no matter what you're going through. You might be terrified, but rest assured, Jesus is relaxed. He's not worried at all. And that gives us permission to relax. Here's the second truth I want to remember. If you have a healthy fear and awe of God, you don't need to be afraid of anything else. Years ago, there was a lot more talk about fearing God. You'd hear someone referred to as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. And I think that kind of language has become less fashionable because we focus so much on the love and the grace of God. And don't get me wrong, that, that focus is definitely a good thing. However, we should never forget that although God is great and God is good, he's also terrifying. If we entered his presence without being forgiven, having our sins washed clean by the blood of Jesus, we'd be annihilated in an instant. But if you have found salvation and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus, this awe-inspiring, terrifying God is on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Think about that. If God is for us, who can be against us? When you really believe that in the deepest part of your soul, do you know where that takes you? It takes you to a place of complete peace and trust and faith. And here's what that looks like. It's the third and final truth. It is a good thing to tell God how big your storm is. But as your faith grows, you'll start telling the storm how big your God is. Wouldn't that be great? I'd love to say that's where my faith is all the time. But I don't want to give you the wrong idea. Sometimes people look at a preacher like me and they assume my life is going just great. But trust me, I've been through some storms. And when I've been in that place, in the middle of Act 2, it's been so easy to look at the wind and the waves and be very afraid. But I've learned that's not helpful. So here's what I want to do. For the rest of my life, I want to stop focusing on the storm itself. And I want to start focusing on the one who has power over the storm. So I'm reminding you, and I'm asking you to remind me, Let's focus on the one who has power over the storm. Let's pray. Father, you know when we get to that place where 
a storm is raging around us. It's so easy for us to be afraid. It's so easy to try to take control and, and, and solve things ourselves. But Lord, we can't do that. You're the one who has power over the seas. You're the one who has power over the storms in our life. And God, help us to understand that even more than a miracle to calm the storm, we need you. We need your presence. So God, help us to to run to you, to find peace in you. And Lord, I thank you that when we do run to you, turn to you, you are on our side. And we don't need to be afraid of anything else. Lord, help us to to believe these things in the deepest part of our souls. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.